following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. This morning we're reading from Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, and my goal is to finish at verse 31. But it's Mission, it's Mission Sunday. So because it's Mission Sunday, while you're looking up the, your Bible, uh, I've got mine here. Because it's Mission Sunday and all the other things I thought I might have worn today weren't going to be colour fast. Not a good day to do it. So I brought my Bible from Papua New Guinea. So let me read to you at least a few, several verses of that. Peter one time, John, he talked, talked, yet, I'll get that spotlight out of my eyes. Peter one time, John, talked, talked, yet, long old man, married an old priest, an old Sadducee one time, or captain, long old man, he saw he was a temple. All he come up. All he saw, he took out in talk, long man, married old same. Jesus, he get up in his mat mat. No, all get a man, he died. And all the money that I pinned all by get up again. All the same, only got beep across the tubula. Sufficient for now. <laughs> my, pref- my preferred preaching language. We'll park that there. <laughs> Reading from NIV, New International Version, the priest and the captain of the temple guard. And the Sadducees came to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming the resurrection, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to be about 5,000. The next day, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there and so was Caiaphas, John Alexander and others in the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you have crucified, by whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we can be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. 
But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them again and commanded them to speak to speak or teach, to, to not speak or teach it at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens, the earth, the sea and everything in them. You spoke through the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of, the, of your holy servant Jesus. After they had prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Excellent. Thanks, Kevin. There's a story told uh, that some of you who read the Daily Bread might have come across a few days ago. Uh, and it was set in central India in the mid-20th century, the tensions between, uh, were running high between non-Christians and Christians. And a young man was told to climb to the top of a three-story building and tear down the cross from its roof. He wasn't successful, though. In fact, he fell off the roof to the street below and was severely injured. When he was taken to the hospital, he was placed on a cot next to a patient who was a believer in Jesus. And when the believer told the injured man what the cross represents and what Christ did for him, his heart was touched and he cried out, Lord Jesus, forgive me. I didn't mean to do it. They made me. I love this story because it is a perfect illustration of what we find in Acts chapter 4. It really brings to light what was going on in this moment in church history. And um, as we continue our series in Acts called Unstoppable, we've been engaging with and thinking about how the church of Jesus Christ continued to advance God's kingdom work on planet earth, beginning in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And we see how God was using ordinary men and women empowered by the Spirit to continue the words and the works of Jesus. And in the face of opposition and hostility and resistance and all kinds of internal and external pressures, the gospel continues to move forward. And we want to be encouraged to consider what God might be saying to us from the book of Acts in our day, how we can stand firm as God's people. That's been our theme for this year and how we can continue to remain faithful to Jesus no matter what we face 
in our time and in our day. And so this morning, as we come to Acts chapter 4, I want to look at three things that help this church continue to remain faithful, to continue to stand firm, and to become the unstoppable force that it was. And that's kind of been our focus as we've come to every chapter and every passage. And so uh, the three things I want to look at is, firstly, we're going to talk about the opportunities that these Christians had. And they took every opportunity that was available to them. And we see from this story that, you know, here's Peter. He's dragged in front of this religious group, these leaders that were the powerful people, the most powerful people in his day. And he's standing there and they're asking him to give an account of what's just happened and whose authority and whose name that they were doing this miracle in. And Peter launches into telling them about Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, by whose power this man is now standing before them healed and whole. And earlier on in the previous chapter that Arnold spoke about, we, we see Peter again taking the opportunity of the people that were running, you know, were amazed at the healing that had just taken place and were gathering around to, to find out what was happening. And, and they could see this incredible miracle that had taken place. And again, Peter takes the opportunity that was right there to preach about Jesus. And then when we go back another chapter to Acts chapter 2, and on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes, and again, a whole bunch of people are running and they're, they're amazed they're curious they're trying to figure out what's going on and Peter gets up and preaches the gospel and every opportunity whether it's a positive one with with a miraculous healing whether it's kind of a neutral one where these people coming on the day of Pentecost curious trying to figure out what was going on or whether it's a negative one in the context of a, a court where they're having to give a report and are being threatened they've spent the night in jail and it's a very negative situation Peter is preaching about Jesus. That's the first thing I want to encourage us and challenge us with. If we want to be an unstoppable force in our community, if we want to stand firm, then we need to take every opportunity that God gives us to talk about Jesus. Now, let's break this down a little bit. We, we, we might not be used by God to do a miracle like Peter was. Maybe we will. We, we may not have a crowd gathering on Barney Street at the end of a prayer and worship night because they're freaked out as to what God is doing in here, going, what's going on in there? Or we might. We may never get dragged in front of a court down in Sydney and, and brought before judges to give an account for a miracle that has taken place or something that we've done or being accused of something that we've done as Christians, or we may. But regardless of that, each of us has experienced one of the, the, the greatest miracle ever. And that is the transformation of our heart. You see, I mean, I don't know if we fully appreciate that. The Bible says that the heart is exceedingly wicked and evil. And yet for God, through Jesus, to be able to transform a human heart and make it his throne room, to make it his place where he dwells, to make it his place where his Holy Spirit comes and abides in us, that's mind-blowing. And each of us have experienced that miracle. And you might find yourself in a situation where people who've known you a long time, or people in your family who once knew you before you were a Christian, or maybe even people that you work alongside and go to school with or university with, that notice that, hey, there's something different about you. And they might ask you to, to explain why you think the way you think, and why you live the way you live, and why there's a joy in your heart, and how come there's always peace that you're living by. And you might have an opportunity. 
or it might come in the in the context of a, a party that you might be at or, or a work function you might be at and, and there's a hot issue in, in our culture at the moment and we know about that right now, right? Abortion. It might be something else and people might go, hey, you're a Christian. What, what do you think about all this stuff? You might get an opportunity that way. Or you might be in a situation where somebody hears or reads a report about the fall of another Christian leader, another high-profile pastor or leader, and they might know you're a Christian and go, hey, you go to church. What is this thing about Christians and the church and all these moral failures among leaderships? What's your church like? You might get an opportunity that way. I've been in situations where those opportunities have presented themselves to me, and maybe they have to you. And sometimes I've chickened out, And sometimes I've had the courage to say something. But I love Peter's example. He doesn't get caught up in the issues. He comes back to talking about Jesus. You know, yes, the conversation might start from abortion or from the next moral failure or or something else. But you want to get to the point of saying, hey, you know, I I don't know about all that stuff. And I I don't have an answer for it. But let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about his life and his death and his resurrection and what that means for you and how that's changed me and how Jesus' love can change you and what the cross means. Like this Indian guy sitting in a bed, he's just tried to pull down a cross and somebody's telling him, let me tell you about what that cross means. Let me tell you about what Jesus means and why he came so that you can know the love of God. So you can be part of God's family. See, and the other thing that this tells me is that a miracle alone is not enough. It's not enough. Like sometimes we think, man, if, if people just saw more miracles, more people would get saved. Well, Jesus did so many miracles. The apostles did so many miracles. And yet, without a, a truth declaration of who Jesus is and how that miracle came about, and that it's because of Jesus and in the power that's in his name, people will not get converted. People don't get born again just because of a miracle. They get born again because of the Spirit of God at work in their hearts, giving them a revelation of who Jesus is. And so I want to give you some, some encouragement from this passage. When you face those opportunities. Firstly, Peter, we're told about Peter in verse 13 that they, these were unschooled ordinary men. Friends, I want to encourage you. God specializes in using people like you and me. Not professionals, not schooled, not learned. And the way that, that the Greek is working, they, they're, they're ignorant people. They're not trained. They're not, they haven't been to rabbinical school. They don't have all the theological training. That's good news for you. It's good news that God can use us as ordinary people, unschooled people, to do his kingdom work. The, the second encouraging thing is that God can... God will anoint and use us. It says in verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, begins to speak. And Jesus promised that in the Gospels. He said, as the disciples, you'll be dragged in front of courts and rulers and authorities and have the opportunity to give uh, an explanation for what you believe. And in that moment, you will be given what to say, Jesus said. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. That's a great encouragement for us. Because like me, sometimes you think, oh God, I don't know what I'm going to say. Uh, how am I going to explain that? What, 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 what words can I use? Trust that Jesus will fulfill his promise. That he will give you the words and the wisdom to speak. That he will fill you with the Holy Spirit. He will anoint you like he did Peter and speak through you. 
The third thing is that God can work in people's hearts even if you come across as arrogant and offensive. You know, when you read Peter's sermons, he doesn't pull any punches at all. You know, he says things which is not very popular in, in today's culture. In verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. In our day, that's offensive. That's arrogant to say that. I remember having this conversation with one of my cousins who's a Hindu. And she said, what is it with you Christians always saying that Jesus is the only way? Like if, if you guys were just able to accept like we do that you know, all gods are okay as long as we're sincere and we're genuine, it doesn't matter, the world would be a better place. And, and the good news is, is that Jesus can work in our hearts and in the hearts of others even if we, and I don't mean go intentionally to be arrogant and, and offensive and rude, not at all. And Peter wasn't doing that. He was just sharing Jesus. As the Bible tells us, the, the, the idea of a crucified Messiah is offensive to Jews. And these guys are trying, they thought, man, we, we were done with this Jesus thing. And yet God is able to work in people's hearts, even if we come across as offensive and arrogant. And the last thing I want to encourage us with is that we would all agree that Jesus is pretty awesome, right? And what our world needs more than ever is more of Jesus. The good news is that we can become more like Jesus as we spend time with Jesus. That's so encouraging. We're told here that these religious leaders who weren't really happy with what Peter and John were saying to them, it says that they were astonished and they took note, verse 13 again, that these men had been with Jesus. What a wonderful thing in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family. They might not like what you have to say. They might not agree with the truth claims that you profess. They might not like the fact that you're saying Jesus is the only way to the Father. But if they can see that, man, but you're like Jesus. Your, your heart, your character, your, your, your witness, your personality, your love is so much like Jesus. The aroma of Christ is all over you. How awesome is that? And it's encouraging that if you want that, and I trust that you do, the, 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 the way to get that is to spend more time with Jesus, that you would become more like him. To be with Jesus so that you can become like Jesus, then you can then do the things that Jesus did. Opportunity, make the most of it. Every opportunity. And whether you think, ah, oh, man, I don't know if I'm going to get it right, if I'm going to say all the right things, trust the Holy Spirit. And talk about Jesus. The second thing that we see here is that there's opposition. There's opposition. And we as Christians, this passage reminds us that we should expect it and resist it. Expect it. Right? This is the first instance of um, persecution really starting in the early church. Luke's kind of hinted that not everybody was on board with this Christian message in chapter 2 and verse 13. On the day of Pentecost, he says that some, however, made fun of them and said that they have had too much wine. I mean, in chapter 2, it was just ridicule. It was just you know people putting these Christians down. But now we have the first instance of kind of real persecution they spend a night in jail they have to stand now before this religious court and and they're threatened not to preach in the name of Jesus and we're seeing that the hostility at this stage is still among the leadership within Israel but in a very few chapters time we're going to see that this hostility is going to turn and it's going to be among the people as well by the time of Stephen's martyrdom it's now 
or a lot more widespread. Very similar to what happened with Jesus. In the early days of Jesus' ministry, it was mainly the, the religious elite, the Jews that were hostile towards Jesus. But then as it got closer to Jesus' crucifixion, it was the crowd that was calling out, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus told us, and he told his disciples over and over again, to, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, is to expect persecution. It's to expect suffering. I mean, I was reading this morning, uh, John chapter 13, where Jesus says, the servant is not above his master. What they did to him, they will do to us. It's to be expected. And we'll see that as we continue in the book of Acts, the persecution only intensifies more and more and more. Ajit Fernando, he says this, after chapter 3, only three chapters in the whole of the book of Acts do not mention persecution. And even in those chapters, it's talking about persecution that's just happened or is to come. This suggests that persecution may be a necessary part of the Christian life. The truth of God, and this is so profound, is too radical for all people to respond to it passively. Some will oppose it. Others will ignore it, but thank God that some will take it to heart. And that's what we see happening here. Not everybody will receive it with open arms. We are to expect opposition and challenge. And we know that in our culture, you know, it is shifting more and more. The church in the West is being pushed more and more to the margins. Uh, we're, we're more, we find ourselves more and more at odds with what our culture values and what our culture thinks is important. Uh, I was at a seminar recently and, and one, one of the presenters said something so very, very helpful. He said, the church has gone from being in a home game environment, using a sports illustration, to an away game environment. It would be kind of like the treatment we should expect from our culture that the Blues will get in the third game when they're in Suncorp Stadium. All right? They're not going to be welcomed with open arms. There's going to be kind of pockets and minorities of blue supporters. But generally, they're going to be booed for the whole game. They're going to be seen as the enemy. They're going to be seen as the threat. They're going to be seen as the, the villains. That is the shift that's happened in our culture. We're not in a home game environment. Anymore. We need to stop thinking that way. We need to start realizing that increasingly, we're going to face more and more hostility. We're going to find ourselves more and more in the margins. The church is going to be seen more and more as the villain, as the cause of the problem, as the ones that are making life difficult for everybody else, as the ones that are standing in the way of freedom, standing in the way of love, standing in the way of all that's good in our culture. We're going to be seen as more and more the ones that are ruining it for everybody. And nobody likes that. You know, I was think, thinking about this when I, I saw that clip on the news that many of you would have seen of the climate activist who chained herself to a car. Did you see the clip of the guy that came up to the window and was hurling abuse at her? Get used to it. That's what it's going to be like. See, I mean, for her, she's, she's on a, a, a really, really important campaign, right? To get us to think about what we're doing to our planet. And yet... Because of the inconvenience she caused to everybody else, nobody had patience for her. Nobody thought of her as a hero. Nobody thought of her as doing the right thing. That's where you and I sit. We're not the good guys. Because the things that we're about, the things that we stand for, are things that our culture 
disagrees with and thinks that we're actually trying to undermine everything that's good if we just get out of the way. And we see into that context, Peter says a really bold and audacious thing. He says in verse verse 18, uh, sorry, 19 and 20, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. He resists the opposition. He says, no, we're not going to do what you're asking us to do. Now, this idea of civil disobedience, for some of us, we kind of get a bit of a high on this, right? Let's be honest. I mean, just looking at all the strikes that are happening in our city this week kind of tells us that. And, you know, going back a little bit further, all the COVID restrictions and vaccination protocol, all of that, you know, right? People, there's something about sticking it to the man that we kind of go, yeah, I don't care about what the government has to say. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm an individual. No authority, no power can tell me what to do. There's something about that that we just go, yeah. We should. And when we read this and Peter is saying this, then we go, yeah, we're going to just forget what the government has. Forget what culture. We just go, yeah. We, and again, let's be honest that we see this time and time again in the Bible where godly people refuse to bow the knee to the government. To powers that be. We see it in the Exodus story where Pharaoh makes a decree that you know the midwives would kill all these babies, and they go, No, we're not gonna do that. We see it in Moses' parents defying the law of the land to hide Moses. We see it with Daniel and his friends not wanting to eat the food that was given to them at risk of their lives and the lives of the people who were looking after them. We see them again, they're not bowing down to the golden statue. We see it in Esther having the boldness to go and see the king against protocol, risking her life. And then we see it in the New Testament. We see it in the prophets throughout that were told not to speak the true word of God. And yet people like Jeremiah faithfully did at great risk to their own lives. And so part of, our, part of us gets excited about that and we kind of go, yeah, I'm going to you know, go and protest and wave my placards and do all that kind of stuff. Well, we, we need to guard our hearts about that stuff. And again, Warren Weasby in his commentary gave some really helpful suggestions as we think about the opposition that we're going to face and how to respond to it and how to react to it and how to resist it in a godly way. And he says this, he says, firstly, we need to make sure that we have a clear gospel mandate that we have a clear word of God, that we're not out there protesting and campaigning because it's a preference of mine, because of something that I want and I think is important and I think everybody else should think it's important. No, we, we see that Peter is saying, no, th- this is a choice between honoring God and honoring you, obeying God and obeying you. Jesus had clearly told them, go into all the world and preach. Their, their first priority is to obey the word of Jesus. So we need to be sure that when we're doing this, that it's a clear gospel issue. And it's, a, it's something that violates the very word of God. And not just because we just want to do our own thing. The second helpful thing he, he suggests is that we need to make sure, and this is so profound, that we have a consistent witness. You know, like sometimes we, we, we say, well, we're, I'm acting out of conscience. And, and we are acting out of conscience with our pet issue. But in other areas, we don't act out of conscience. There's no consistency in our conscience. We're happy to compromise on our taxes or when it comes to speeding. We're happy to compromise and turn the other blind eye and do all of those things that are dodgy and a little bit gray when it comes to other things that the Bible also speaks clearly about. 
But then when we get into our pet issue, we're like, oh, I'm really passionate about this. And Wisby says, well, there's an inconsistency in your conscience. And that will do more damage for the cause of Christ than do anything to advance it. And I think that's really important for us to think about. And the third thing that he says is, do that respectfully. And that's what we see throughout the Bible. And if you want to read the, the, the way that Daniel and his, or Daniel's friends respond to Nebuchadnezzar, it's just so respectful. And even here, when Peter is responding, he's not arrogant and rude and disrespectful. He says, look, I get it. But my priority is to honor Jesus. He's doing it in such a respectful way and a courteous way, not in an arrogant condescension. You know, and again, I want to say sometimes Christians do more damage to the cause of Christ by how they resist than even the resistance, by how they protest, and sometimes how they bicker with each other about the protests, than advancing the cause of Christ. And the last one I've added in, this is from me, not from Wisby. He didn't mention this, but reading Acts. I want to say the fourth thing you need to be prepared for is to deal with the consequences that will inevitably come when you resist. You see, people, you know, when it came to all the COVID restrictions and stuff, they were happy to protest, but then they were complaining equally passionately that the government came and gave them a fine. Well, you can't have it both ways. And we see Peter, like, and, and the apostles in the book of Acts, they, they remained faithful to Jesus, but that meant going to jail. That meant getting beaten up. That meant a whole bunch of consequences that came after it. But as the gospel said, they didn't love their lives to protect it. They were like, Jesus, we're going to honor you. Come what may. You, you can't say, well, I have the right. And then somebody else says, well, then I have the right to do this. And you then complain about that. If we want to resist well and honor Christ, then we need to be committed, convinced, Passionate, courteous, loving, respectful, all of those things, and be ready to receive just like Jesus did when he stood before Pilate and said, like a lamb before the slaughter, I'm here to do the will of my Father. That's what we need to embrace and adopt if we want to stand firm, to expect opposition and to resist it in a godly way. The last thing is ongoing prayer. So they took every opportunity, they resisted the opposition, and they prayed. This, this section ends with them praying passionately. I love the fact that you know, they go back, Peter and John go back to their own, which suggests like a smaller group of people, not the whole church, because it was up to about 5,000 people here now, more, probably 10,000. They gather with them, and they're sharing their struggles. They're sharing with them what's happened, and they respond in prayer. They respond in prayer. Oh, sorry, I want to read you that Weasby quote, which was really, really brilliant. And I really wanted you to read this. It's so good. God's people must be careful not to clothe their prejudice, unreasonable or unfavorable feelings, opinions, or attitudes in the garments of righteous indignation and pass themselves off as courageous soldiers of conscience. We must examine our own hearts honestly to make, so, make certain we are not conducting a holy war just to satisfy our inner frustrations. Uh, that's so true. But a, a wonderful response we see is prayer. Prayer. Praying together. And, and these disciples, they come together, they're praying, they're seeking God. They, they're continually praying and praying and praying. They're sharing their struggles and they're praying together. Verse 34 says, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. 
And this is the longest recorded prayer in the book of Acts. And I, I think the content here is really, really helpful at the very beginning of this persecution that was going to intensify that will help us as we think about our opportunities, as we think about opposition in our day, in how to pray in the midst of all of that. And I think there were six things, six purposes or six themes or six focuses that come out in this prayer that I think would be really, really helpful and encouraging for us. One is they come to God as the sovereign creator. Verse 24, they lifted up their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in it. They, They come to God with a vision of his bigness of his greatness, of his sovereignty, of his power, of his majesty. You know, see, when we face opposition and hardship, it's so easy to lose sight of how big our God is. And I love that they start with refocusing their eyes and their attention on how awesome God is. That's a great way to pray. God, you're the awesome sovereign creator of everything. The second thing that comes out, the second focus, is that they recognize that evil is a real part of our lives. You know, they talk about, they quote from Psalm. Um, sorry, no, they, 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 their prayers are soaked in scripture. Psalm, they quote from Psalm 2, 1 and 2. And their prayers are, are so saturated in God's word. And I think that's really, really important that we are in God's word and we're putting the word of God into our hearts in the good times so that when the bad times come, the word of God is already there, deposited in us for the Holy Spirit to draw it out of us. Again, another scholar said, said something really helpful and he said this when thinking about praying the scriptures, Warren Wisby again. True prayer is not telling God what to do, but asking God to do his will in and through us. It means getting God's will done on earth, not man's will done in heaven. And the more soaked you are in the word of God, the more you will pray in line with God's word and God's will. The third point is recognizing that there is evil. They quote from Psalm 2, recognizing God that there will be enemies of the gospel. And we are not exempt. And we, as followers of Jesus, are going to face the same hostility and opposition because evil is real. That they didn't have this pie in the sky notion that as Christians, we're going to have an easy, cushy life. And that things are going to go well for us. They didn't have this idea that somehow they would be spared the suffering that their Lord and Savior endured. They didn't have a triumphalistic attitude that said, oh, well, because we're Christians now, when we have the Holy Spirit, we're going to overcome in every circumstance. Not at all. They're like, the nations will continue to rage. The rulers will band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And they talk about Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and how they met together to kill Jesus. And they're like, God, evil exists and it's real in our world. But what's interesting is that they put their confidence in God's sovereignty. That's the next thing they do. They say, but Lord, verse 28, they only did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Yes, God, there's evil in the world and it's awful and it's horrible. But God, we know that evil doesn't exist outside of your control. That you're still sovereign. That it's still part of your plan. You're working out your plan. And though hell itself might rage, it will not be able to thwart the purposes of God. Because you're sovereign. You're in control and you will work out your plan. And the next thing that they do, the next focus, which is really interesting, is they didn't ask for the persecution to stop. They asked for God to empower them to stand against it. Verse 29, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. God, we know evil is real. 
God, we know that you're in control of it, but right here and now, it's really hard, God. It's really hard to deal with this. It's really hard to maybe lose my job because of my stand. God, it's really hard for me to be rejected by my family for making my stand. God, it's really hard, but will you enable me? Will you enable and empower me to stand firm for you, to still love and to still declare the truth about Jesus? Phillips Brooks, he said this about prayer. Do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Friend, I don't know what you're going through, what your workplace is like, your uni, your school, and how they're treating you because you're a Christian. Share it. If you're in a connect group, if you've got friends in the church, share it so that they can pray together with you that you would be enabled and empowered to stand for Jesus when it's hard. Because it will be. It will be. And it won't be without sacrifice and cost. And the last thing they say is, God, will you turn up? When we're out there witnessing, when we're out there telling people about Jesus, will you come in your power? Will you confirm your word? Will you show people that Jesus is alive and risen, that he's real? And will you do signs and wonders and miracles among us? And I love it because when you read the book of Acts, the majority of miracles recorded happen in the context of mission. When people are out there, when they're telling people about Jesus, when they're preaching about the resurrected power of Jesus and God confirms his word time and time and time again. To pray and believe, God, will you use me in my workplace? That even though you know, they don't like what I have to say, if they're sick, Lord, when I pray for them and I tell them about the resurrected power of Jesus, would you heal them? Would you do a miracle and a sign and a wonder that will enable me to, to give them a, a, a gospel presentation, to tell them about Jesus that will earn a hearing for the gospel? That's what we ought to be praying. That's how we should be praying. And then God answers with another theophany. Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit again and they spoke the word of God boldly. God answers, shakes the place and says, yes, I will do that because you've prayed according to your, my will and you're, you're praying about mission and you're praying for boldness. Yes, I will fill you again with the Holy Spirit. Ajit Fernando again says this, the biggest enemy is not our circumstances. The biggest enemy to the advance of the gospel is not our circumstances or the wickedness and injustice of the world. Rather, it is our own proneness to disobedience. That is the thing that will stop the advance of the kingdom of God. Your disobedience and mine. And that's why, friends, we, we need the Holy Spirit. We, we can't do this on our own. We, we can't stare in the face of hostility and opposition and remain faithful to Jesus without his empowering us. We, we can't have the courage to take the opportunity, if the band can jump up, to witness to someone without the Holy Spirit empowering us. We, we can't obey the great commission to go into all the world, to be faithful witnesses. We, we can't live the Christian life that God is calling us to live in an increasingly hostile culture without the strength and the power and the enabling of the Holy Spirit. And that's why they prayed, God, will you fill us again with your power? Being filled with the Holy Spirit is not a one-time deal. It's an ongoing experience. 
And so this morning, I want to encourage you as we finish our time and we're going to sing something that we, we pray that God would fill us again. You know, God doesn't always bring an earthquake. I mean, it's great when he does. And when we have those mountaintop experiences. But God also speaks in whispers like he did with Elijah. And like many of you here, I can testify to the many, many times God has enabled me to read something in the daily bread. Or somebody sent me an encouraging text. Or I read something in the word of God. Or some other way that God has encouraged me to keep going. When it was hard. When it was difficult. When it was disappointing and frustrating and when it was tiring and you just think, God, I don't know if I can do this anymore. God in His grace comes along and encourages you and strengthens you to keep going. But it's not always through an earthquake. So this morning, I want to encourage you, wherever you're at, however you're feeling, will you join with me in opening your heart to be filled with the Holy Spirit again? For us to have the boldness to speak the Word of God, to take every opportunity, to not shrink back to not hide in fear, to not be overwhelmed and overcome with the hostility and the opposition that maybe we will increasingly face, but that we will stand firm, that we will have the gospel mandate to talk about Jesus. And rather than getting lost in moral and ethical debates and issues, that we will be about talking about Jesus. And that we will believe that as we step out in faith that God will give us the words. And as we step out in faith to pray for someone that God's power will be there to do miracles. Because we're on mission. Continuing the words and the works of Jesus. Will you join me? Will you stand with me? Will you open your heart? Will you open yourself to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Will you extend your hands out in faith, in obedience? Will you come before God and say, God, I need you. I need your Holy Spirit. I need you to fill me again. I need you to work in my heart. God, I need you to strengthen me in my innermost being by the power of your Holy Spirit. As I go into this week, Father, I don't want to go alone. I don't want to go in my own strength. I want to go in you. Come on, church. Why don't you begin to open your heart and open your mouth and begin to pray and begin to seek God. That's what the first Christians did. They prayed, they prayed, they prayed, they prayed, they prayed, they prayed together. And if you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit and you speak in tongues, do that. Pray in tongues right now. Let's stir it up. Let's stir up the Holy Spirit that's in you already. And if you're yet to receive that baptism, then pray that God would baptize you right now and give you the enabling to speak in tongues. If you've been filled with the Holy Spirit already, pray that God will fill you again and again and again if you've been filled then pray that God will release you in the gifts of his Holy Spirit that he will give you the boldness to preach and to pray and to declare and to speak about Jesus oh Holy Spirit come we need you Lord Oh, Holy Spirit, come and fill us again. Fill us afresh. Fill us again. We need you, Holy Spirit. We're pressing into you. Oh, because we need you. We're desperate for more of you. We're desperate for your enabling power. We're desperate for you to come. Lord, as we surrender ourselves to you again, that you'll fill us afresh again. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. If you're watching and you're at home, I encourage you, get up off your lounge, get up off your seat, wherever you are. If you're outside, stand up and begin to press into God. Begin to open your heart and your mouth. Begin to seek God earnestly. Because Jesus promised that all who seek will find and all who ask, it will be given to them. And all who knock and keep on knocking, the door will be open. 
Oh, church, we want to be hungry for God. Hungry for God, wherever you are, even in your lounge room, you can experience and encounter the risen Jesus and be filled with the Holy Spirit right now. for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.